You can turn to James chapter 4. James chapter 4. That song was a song that we grew up listening to. There was an there was a evangelist in our church, uh, a black guy who was named Darcel McCoy. And uh, he was actually our neighbor for many years. Uh, we lived out in the country. They lived in a house uh, a little ways up the road from us. But he sang that song all over the country and uh, traveled in evangelism. And one morning he was on his way to... Uh, to the, up to the church to work out. He was, he was kind of like a staff evangelist, if you will. That Fairhaven, where we grew up, was his home church. And uh, when he wasn't preaching, they were, he was back there. The kids were all in school. A couple of them, one of them was in my class. One of them was right below me. A couple of them were above me. And uh, he was on his way to work out at the church one morning with his daughter, and he got hit and killed by a drunk driver. And uh, I, just, I, still, I think I was a senior in high school when that happened. I still remember it like it was yesterday. It's kind of one of those... 9-11 type moments, you know, uh, you remember exactly where you were at when you heard the news about 9-11, and it's kind of the same thing with him, and, and uh, just the fact, I think he was only 55, 56 years old, something like that, and, uh, but what a tremendous, uh, tremendous song, we used to love it when he sang that song, every time we have a conference, he would sing that song, and we, everybody was waiting for him to come out and sing it, you know, and, uh, but man, I've, I've loved that song for a long, long time. Well, James chapter 4, and verse number 14 is a pretty familiar verse, but I want to read it to you this morning. I want to talk about it for a few minutes. Whereas you know not what shall be on the morrow, for what is your life? It is even a vapor that appeareth for a little time and then vanisheth away. There are two sides to this coin in this verse, if you will. The first is in the fact that we cannot predict what's going to happen tomorrow. In fact, we can't even predict what's going to happen in the next five minutes. We think we know what's going to happen in the next five minutes, and we're planning for the next five minutes, but we can't predict it. And that's exactly, the, in verse number 13, go to now, you say that today or tomorrow we'll go into such and city and, and continue there a year and buy and sell and get gain, but you don't know, whereas you know not what shall be on the morrow. People have been trying to do that for years, but really to, to little avail. Uh, every so often somebody gains some notoriety by trying to predict when Jesus Christ is going to come back. People have been trying to predict the end of the world for years, and they, you know, they try to give a date for when the world is going to end. How foolish. Even the weathermen, can't, can't, with all the latest gadgets of science and technology, can't even predict what the weather is going to be tomorrow, right? All you got to do is walk outside and look up in the air, and we do a little bit better job predicting what the weather is going to be than they do. In fact, I think that's what they do a lot of times. They look outside, oh, it's raining, let's put that on the app, right? Uh, oh, it's sunny, it's, let's put that on the app, right? There's always a 5% chance of rain, though, because you never know when it's going to happen. But uh, There was a, a man by the name of Edgar C. Wisenant. He actually caused a considerable amount. I was, I was alive during this time, but I don't remember it. Um, I was five years old. But he wrote a book titled 88 Reasons Why Christ Will Come Back in 88. And he had 88 reasons in that book based on a number of false premises. But uh, he accumulated just this astonishing assortment of facts and misinformation. He set the date for the rapture of Jesus Christ for Monday, September the, 20, the 12th, 1988. But he did say there was a possibility it could be a day before or a day after. So he gave himself a little bit of wiggle room in there. Well, a pastor, when that book first came out, read the book and was able to get a hold of this man's information. And he called him up on the phone. This is how the conversation went. Are you Edgar C. Wisnett? He said, yes, sir. The former, NASA, the former NASA space engineer? Yes, sir. Are you the man who wrote 88 reasons why the Lord will come back in 88? Yes, sir, I am. 
Well, tell me, Mr. Wisnett, are you sure that the Lord is coming this September, September 11th, 12th, or 13th? Yes, sir. You're quite sure? Yes, I am. Very well, then, Mr. Wisnett. I'd like to buy your house and your car. I'll give you $5,000 for your house and $1,000 for your car. I'll have the legal documents made out, and I'll pay you the cash right now. I'll take possession of it on September 14th. Amazingly enough, the man refused to sell his house and his car. Even the guy who was sure that Jesus Christ was going to come back was not sure that Jesus Christ was going to come back. So James is quite right. We cannot tell the future, even tomorrow. But there's a second side of this coin, if you will. He says this, for what is your life? It is even a vapor that appeareth for a little time and then vanisheth away. Life at best is fragile. Never is that more evident to me than when I'm kneeling beside a family who has just lost a brother or a son, somebody that they never thought was going to be the one that went before them. Never is it more evident than when I am knocking on someone's door to tell them that their loved one has just been killed in a car accident. Never is that more evident than when I'm kneeling beside a body of a person that walked across the street and didn't make it. They got hit by a car and killed. Life is fragile. Life is a vapor, as he says, that appeareth for a little time and then vanisheth away. It dances in the sunlight for a moment and then it vanishes into thin air. I had the great fortune of being able to spend some time in the, in the great Smoky Mountains. And I'm thankful for the opportunity. I, I traveled in a singing group. where our, our youth group was quite large, and so we got the opportunity to travel and do some things with that. But I've been to all 48 lower, all the 48 lower states. I've never been to Alaska or Hawaii, so those are on my on my list at some point to go over there and see those. But I've spent some time in the Great Smoky Mountains, mostly in Tennessee, but they're so aptly named because you walk outside in the morning and the entire mountain is covered in what just what looks like smoke. And it's actually it's actually just a mist that's rising from the valley floor, but this mist, it just forms this eerie, eerie mist that envelops the mountain. Now, I've taken pictures and believe it or not, you can you can see ghosts in the mist. I'm kidding, I've not seen any ghosts. <laughs> But it's surprising at how the entire mountain is covered in this mist, and it seems like you just turn around and that mist is gone. The sun's shining, and, and you can see the majesty of the mountains, and our lives are just like that mist. They're here today, and then they're gone tomorrow. I don't think anyone understood this better than Moses when he wrote the 90th Psalm. Turn over there to Psalm 90. God had just passed a death sentence on the Israelites in the wilderness, and Believe it or not, David only wrote about half of the Psalms. David wrote 75 out of the 150 Psalms. The other 75 are written by many other people. Moses wrote about five or six of them, and Psalm 90 is one of those that he wrote. Those who were 20 years old and upward were condemned to wander in the wilderness for no more than 40 years because by the time that 40 years of wandering was up, they were going to be dead. God had passed that judgment on them for their complaining. Moses was in that number. Moses was not going to make it into the promised land. By the time that 40 years of wandering in the wilderness was up, he also was going to be dead alongside of all of them. This is what he wrote in that psalm, in Psalm 90 and verse number 5. Thou carriest them away as with a flood. They are as a sleep. In the morning they are like grass which groweth up. In the morning it flourisheth and groweth up. In the evening it is cut down and withereth. Verse number 9. For all our days are passed in thy wrath. We spend our years as a tale that is told. The days of our years are threescore and ten, and if by reason of strength they be fourscore years, 
Yet is their strength labor and sorrow, for it is soon cut off, and we fly away. Verse number 12, so teach us to number our days that we may apply our hearts unto wisdom. The three score and 10 years, 70 years, referred to the length of life in the wilderness. Those who were 20 years old when that death sentence was passed would be 60 when that 40 years was up. The fourscore years, perhaps, maybe Moses was referring to himself. He was fourscore years old. He was 80 years old as he wrote this psalm in the wilderness. If a man was 20 years old, he would die before or at the age of 60. If he was 30 years old, he would die before or at the age of 70. If he was 40 years old, he would die before or at the age of 80. So you can imagine that a shadow of death hung over that camp. They knew that death was coming. They didn't know exactly when, but they knew they were not going to make it out of that wilderness. And the same shadow hangs over us as well. We always have to consider the uncertainty of life. A sinner had a dream that he was clinging to a rope that was hanging over a river. And he was, uh, he was hanging to that rope because he had ventured out onto it as he was trying to escape a tiger. But as he hung on that rope, he looked in the river below him, and there, underneath that rope, was a crocodile swimming there, waiting for him to fall off of that rope. And as he looked up, there was a rat gnawing at the rope that he was hanging on. And as he thought about that dream, later on, he, he put two and two together, and he thought, boy, that tiger was my past. And that crocodile is my future that rope that he was hanging on represented that temporary reprieve. But there was time gnawing at the top of that rope. We all arrive on this earth with a figurative hourglass over our heads. You don't add sand to an hourglass. We all have a certain amount of time. We can't see it, but God can. And that sand runs down day and night, relentlessly, continually, as those moments speed by. We don't know how much sand we have left in our glass. All we know is that we have less now than we had an hour ago. It's a transient life. It's like vapor in the air. With that in mind, the reminder that life is short. Life is short. I want to give you three things this morning that we should be doing because of that very fact. Let's pray, and then we'll look at those things. Father, we love you, and we thank you so much for how good you are to us. I thank you for allowing us to be here together this morning. I pray that you'd help us as we remember and, and are reminded about this idea that we don't have forever on this earth. We'd make it count for the cause of Jesus Christ. And I pray that you'd speak to our hearts this morning through the message. Help me to say only those things that need to be said. Thank you for what you do in Jesus' name. Amen. Life is short. I wanted to say this, first of all, number one, live for God. Turn, over, turn back over to James chapter 4. Vapor is simply water that has resisted the natural behavior of water. Water always obeys the downhill pull of gravity, right? They say that water always seeks the lowest level, but steam or vapor has overcome that downward pull. Water always seeks the lowest level, but steam or vapor soars to the highest level. Water has its place on earth. It belongs eventually in the sea, but vapor has its place in the sky. That's where vapor belongs. It belongs in the cloud. And the way that that vapor makes it to the cloud is that it's drawn by the sun. The sun is what draws that vapor up into those clouds. And not all water is going to respond to that draw from the sun. Obviously, we see plenty of water on this earth. But the water that does lives as a vapor on a much higher plane. And that's, I believe, exactly the way that it is with us. Some respond to the Lord Jesus Christ, as he's called in Malachi, the son 
of righteousness. But James chapter 4 and verse number 17 says this, Therefore to him that knoweth to do good and doeth it not, to him it is sin. If there is anything that I could earnestly beg you to do here this morning, it is simply this, live for God. Live for God. Nothing else in this life matters if we're not living for God. Living for our jobs is not going to bring satisfaction. Living for ourselves is not going to bring happiness. Living for the pleasures that we can find in this life is not going to bring us peace. The only thing that can bring fulfillment in this life is living for God. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. We're not made to live like everyone else. As Christians, we are made to be different. We are a peculiar people. The devil makes his living on getting people to push off their spiritual goals for one more day. He doesn't care if you're considering whether you're going to accept Jesus Christ or not as long as you'll push off that consideration and that decision till tomorrow. He doesn't care if you have lofty goals of living for God as long as you'll start tomorrow. He doesn't care... It, it, he'll even encourage you, I think, sometimes to get busy in the service of the Lord as long as you agree to start doing that tomorrow. But may I remind you of the words of warning that we find in Proverbs chapter 27. Boast not thyself of the morrow, for thou knowest not what a day may bring forth. You don't know what tomorrow looks like. You may not have tomorrow to serve God. You may not have tomorrow to live for God. You may not be here by tomorrow at this time to serve God, and by then it's too late. Live for God today. Make the decision to accept Jesus Christ and get your sins forgiven today. Make the move to serve God today. Make the move to live for God today. Psalm 90, we just read that in verse number 12. So teach us to number our days that we may apply our hearts unto wisdom. Live for God. That involves making tough decisions to stay away from the things that we often find pleasure in. Oh, the world's flocking to that pleasure and so many Christians do the same thing because, well, it's great, it's, it's, it's exciting, it's wonderful. Oh, I can't, I can't stay away from those things. There's, there's so much fun in those things. And to a certain extent, there probably is some fun in those things. But it'll involve evaluating your lifestyle to see what you need to change in order to protect your Christian testimony. It ought to be obvious by the way that you're dressed. It ought to be obvious by the way that you speak, by your manner of acting, by your manner of living, by your attitude, and by everything about you, that not only are you a Christian, but that you are a Christian who is sold out for Jesus Christ, a Christian who is intent on living for God. So many Christians are satisfied with, well, they know I'm a Christian, and they know where they can find me, and I, and I know my lifestyle maybe doesn't line up with 100% that way, but I'm better than they are, at least. I'm giving them something they can try to attain to. No, we ought not to just be satisfied with being Christians. We ought to be satisfied only when we are Christians who are truly living for God. A young lady was attempting to defend her attendance at a questionable place of amusement. And her friends kind of got into a little bit of a discussion with her about that. And she said, well, I, I have the liberty in Jesus Christ to go wherever I want to go as a Christian. And her friend said, certainly you can. But I want to remind you about a little incident that I heard about when a few of my friends went to explore a coal mine. And one of those friends showed up in a white, dainty dress. And we told her she should not go into that coal mine with that white dress on like that. And she was so intent on going in there because she didn't feel like going back home to change that she turned to the old miner who was going to act as a guide for their party into that coal mine. And he, she said, can I wear a white dress down into that mine and he said, yes, ma'am, there's nothing to keep you from wearing a white dress down there. 
there'll be a whole lot of things to keep you from wearing one back. And that's exactly what happens when we as Christians dive into the pleasures of the world. Well, can I go live how I want to live? Can I do what I want to do? I, am, I have my freedom in Christ. Grace covers everything, doesn't it? Well, yes, it does. But there's nothing to say that your testimony is still going to be intact. There's nothing to say that your spiritual life is going to be what it should be or what it ought to be or what it is now if you go dive into those things in the world. I earnestly beg you this morning, live for God. Life is short and you only get one chance to do it. It's a vapor. It's only here for a few moments. And only what you do for the cause of Jesus Christ is what's going to be left when that vapor vanishes. Life is short. Live for God. But number two, love others. Life is busy. The days get to be a blur sometimes. And it's weird how you look back and here we're getting close to the end of 2021. It's hard to believe that we're past 2020, let alone 2021 already too. We rush from place to place and we're constantly moving past masses of humanity, people everywhere. You go down to the to Shore Pump Town Center, you just drive up Broad Street and you see masses of people everywhere, right? Try getting through that traffic sometimes. People everywhere. We see them, but do we really see them? Jesus did. He's the one who sees everything, but he saw into the hearts of men, and he saw the end from the beginning. He saw not just a multitude, but he saw individuals. And how many times we see Jesus Christ pointing out an individual. You see Zacchaeus. You see many others, the, the blind man and the lame man. And, and here he is in a multitude of people, but he sees the individual for who they are. I fear that all too often we see people, but we don't really see them. Time is short. People are dying. They're falling into a Christless hell, and that's where they're going to spend eternity. If we don't give them the message of the gospel, if we don't warn them of the coming judgment, we have to see them as God sees them. And I think, first of all, we have to see them as fellow human beings. Color and culture, clothes, that, don't that doesn't represent the person. And I know sometimes we see different different things going on in our world and you see people dressed a certain way and you think there's no way that that person could ever get saved. There's no way that that person is ever going to come to Jesus Christ. But I'm telling you, most of the people that are living like that and dressing like that and acting like that are doing that because they're looking for something and they don't know where to turn and so they just rebel against everything. What they need is Jesus Christ. They don't need somebody to say, look at that weird person. I'm going to shun them. I'm going to stay away from them. They need, to see, they need somebody to look past the way they look on the outside and see them as a soul. We're all made of one blood, the Bible says in Acts chapter 17. We're all made in the image of God, he says in Genesis chapter 1. We're not, as some religions try to tell people, uh, all children of God, but we are all created by God to say, well, he, he's a homosexual. I can't, I can't talk to somebody like that with a wicked lifestyle. What a wicked thing to say. I've had, I've had several homosexual police officers come talk to me because they know that I would listen to them. I make it plain to them that I don't approve of their lifestyle, and I'll never approve of that lifestyle because the Bible does not approve of that lifestyle. But they know that I love them. They know that I care about them. And that's why even knowing where I stand on those issues, they'll come and they'll ask me questions about life. They'll come and they'll ask me questions. And I use that as an opportunity as much as I can to try to point them to Jesus Christ because that's what they need. 
You want to get rid of homosexuality in America, lead them to Jesus Christ. You want to get rid of murder in America, lead them to Jesus Christ. You want to get rid of rioting and looting and all this stuff, lead them to Jesus Christ. The easiest thing is to complain and, 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 and talk about them and, and shun them and push them away. What they need is Jesus Christ. They don't need somebody to see them as a group of individuals who are ruining this country. They need somebody to see them as an individual who is a soul that's on their way to hell who needs Jesus Christ as their Savior. That's what they need. And we ought to love people the way that God loves those people. We don't have to approve of their lifestyle to love them the way that God loves them. Jesus Christ made it very plain that he didn't approve of the lifestyle of many of the people that he dealt with, but he made it very clear that he loved them as well. To hear someone disparage another person because they're black or Asian or Hindu or Muslim is not seeing them the way that God sees them. We have to see each person as a fellow human being, but I think we also have to see them as somebody's father, somebody's mother, somebody's brother, somebody's sister, somebody's friend, or a son or a daughter to somebody. They're not only real people, they have relationships. Somebody loves them. God, most of all. Somebody else loves them too. And more than likely, somewhere in their family tree is a grandmother or a mother or somebody who's praying for them to come know Jesus Christ as their Savior. And we have to see them that way. We have to see people as eternal souls. Yes, they are sinners, just as we are. That's who I was before I came to know Jesus Christ as my Savior. I'm no better than anybody else. Look, we like to, we like to uh, harp on homosexuality in America because God calls it an abomination. You know what else God calls an abomination? Lying. Have you ever told a lie? You're in the same boat. You're an abomination to God too. No, not, there's not one sin that's worse than another sin. There's not one thing that God's going to say, well, you did this and so you can't be saved. No, God sees them and he loves them and we ought to do the same thing. And if we would remember where we were before Jesus Christ found us and pulled us out of that miry clay and set our feet on a rock, then it would change our perspective on everybody else as well. They're souls for whom Jesus died. They're precious souls to God. And they're going to spend forever either in heaven or hell. It's too easy to see the surface and miss that spiritual reality, to see people in time and to forget them, forget to view them through the lens of eternity. See individuals from the perspective of earth and miss the view from God's vantage point is missing the entire boat. Turn over to Acts chapter 3. Paul, Peter and John in Acts chapter 3 were used of God to heal a man who had been lame from his birth. He was a broken man. He was a beggar. Multitudes of religious people rushed past him every single day on their way into the temple to worship God. Imagine that. Doing what they thought was best. And honestly, it is. There's nothing wrong. We should be in the temple to worship God. But they barely turned to see a man who was just trying to survive. And this lame beggar probably grew accustomed to giving glances toward a lot of people as they walked in to see if they would give him the time of day. When he did make eye contact, it was only with the hope that they would toss him a few little coins so he could survive to tomorrow. Perhaps many times he averted his eyes in shame because he was embarrassed of his condition. I don't know. Like a lot of people in our world, he probably lived with his head down. But then we see in Acts chapter 3 and verse number 3, 
who's seeing Peter and John talking about the lame man, about to go into the temple, asked in alms. And Peter, fastening his eyes upon him with John, said, look on us. And he gave heed unto them, expecting to receive something of them. Then Peter said, silver and gold have I none, but such as I have give I thee in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. They intentionally, thoughtfully, spiritually looked at that man. They saw him as he was, and they saw him as God could make him. And I think it's such a wonderful thing to know, to see, that their desire in getting this man to look at them was so that they could help him to see Jesus Christ. Look to the Lord. Live for God, but then look to others and help them look to the Lord. We need God's help to keep us from seeing people as a means to an end or as a hindrance to our goals. People are not just there to be used and abused. They are not a nuisance or an inconvenience. They're real people. They're fellow sinners and they're needy souls. John chapter 4 and verse 35 says, Lift up your eyes and look on the harvest. Look on the fields, for they are white already under harvest. They're sinners. There's hope for them just as there was hope for you and I before we came to know Jesus Christ as our Savior. Look over in Ezekiel chapter 18. I know people have a lot more baggage today than they did in the 1950s and 60s and 70s. People were generally more moral then. And you could knock on the door and talk to somebody and they would accept Jesus Christ as their Savior and the next day they'd be in church and they'd be dressed up and they'd be looking like a Christian. Hard to do that today with the way people are dressed and looking and all of those kind of things. They have a lot more things to get over on their way to Christ. But through Jesus Christ, there's hope. It does not matter what their past is. It doesn't matter what they look like today. It doesn't matter what they're going through today. It says this in Ezekiel chapter 18 and verse number 20. The soul that sinneth, it shall die. The son shall not bear the iniquity of the father. Neither shall the father bear the iniquity of the son. The righteousness of the righteous shall be upon him. And the wickedness of the wicked shall be upon him. But if the wicked will turn away from all his sins that he hath committed and keep all my statutes and do that which is lawful and right, he shall surely live, he shall not die. All his transgressions that he hath committed, they shall not be mentioned unto him. In his righteousness that he hath done, he shall live. Boy, it doesn't matter about their past. It doesn't matter where they came from. It doesn't matter about our past. It doesn't matter where we came from. The righteousness of the righteous will be upon him, and the wickedness of the wicked will be upon him. We all have that individual choice that we have to make, and we have to strive to see others the way that Christ sees them and win them to him with the little time that we have left. Life is short. Live for God. Life is short. Love others. And lastly, I want to say this. Life is short. Love life. Love life. Two mistakes people make often. The one is making too much of this life as if it's everything. The other mistake people often make is making too little of life as if it were nothing. There's so much to live for. God's blessed us beyond what we can imagine, but life is precious. We never seem to realize that until one is taken from us. I've lost those close to me and so have you. Life is precious. Cherish life. Love those who are left here with you. There's a poem called October. It's turned into a song. It says this. It's in smiles, a lover's eyes. It's in joy when it needs no disguise. It's in fairy tales and lullabies and stories that hold true. It's in hugs, apple pies, 
It's in love that grows old and never dies. These things make me glad to be alive. We'll never be able to treasure life enough. When death comes, my heart is overcome. We'll never be able to treasure life enough. But when death comes, I start looking up. Little legs that sit upon a shoulder. It's in blonde curls that won't be there when she's older. It's in raising up what was raised in us, spending Sunday in a pew. It's in fall, winter, summer, spring, when we're driving down the road and start to sing. It's in love. Love overcomes it all. It's in memories of back when we were small, falling leaves and clear blue skies and all the things we've made it through. We'll never be able to treasure life enough. When death comes, my heart is overcome. So I'll never be able to treasure life enough. When death comes, I try to find a life that will last. Life is going so fast. Life is going so fast. What a life. What a blessing life is. Take time to enjoy it. Take time with your children. Play games. Laugh. Sing together. Go places. Take that vacation. There are seasons of life, and when that season is over, it's gone. If you're waiting until you have enough money, it's probably never going to happen. Take the plunge. You can overspend, but most of it will be money that you'd be glad you spent when your kids are grown and gone because you cannot go back and make memories. You can make them now. Love life. Spend time with your parents. Get their insight. Learn their stories. Hear their advice. That season will be over someday and you can't get it back. Here's the best part. For those who know Jesus Christ as their Savior, we get all of this and then heaven besides. Love life. Enjoy life. It's not all about living. It's about living for God. But life is wonderful. Life is precious. But we have to understand that life is fragile. If you could stand in the middle of a field... And look at a wall that extends as far as you can see in both directions. And then you took a little speck of dust and threw that piece of dust on the wall. That little speck of dust represents the 70, 80, 90 years if we're fortunate. That represents our life on the timeline of eternity. It's so short. It's not much. It's a little blip on the screen. And then it's gone. One thing that I've noticed on every single tombstone, whether it's this ornately hewn slab that you see like in Hollywood Cemetery or some little stone in the ground, one thing that I've noticed about all of them is that there's always a birth date and a death date. And in between that date is just a little dash. That's your life. We all get that little dash through life. That's it. No, no time to restart, no, no doing it over. That dash between the dates is what you get. What are you doing with it? What are you doing with it? Life is short. Life is short. Live for God. Make it count for him. Love others. Make it count for them. 
Because if we can lead somebody to Jesus Christ, they don't understand how much of a difference that makes. Not just for life now, but for eternity. Live for God, love others, and love life. You only get one. You only get one. And when it's over, it's over. It's gone. It's even a vapor. It appeareth for a little time and then vanisheth away. Live for God. Love others. Love life. It's short. Let's pray. Father, we love you. Again, we thank you so much for how good you are to us. Thank you for life. Thank you for breath. We are all literally one breath away from dying. And I pray that you'd help us to live with that in mind. Because we may not get a chance to live for God tomorrow. We may not get a chance to love others tomorrow. We may not get a chance to love life tomorrow. So I pray that you'd help us to do it today. And God, if a decision needs to be made this morning... I pray that you give us the courage to step out, come down to the altar and make that decision that we're going to live for you. Help us to put aside things that many people feel like they can't live without, but that are hindering their relationship with you. I pray that you help us to live for you, truly, honestly live for you. I pray that you help us to love others to the point where we're willing to do whatever we have to do to get the message of the gospel to them. And God, I pray that you'd help us to cherish this life. I thank you for it. I pray that you'd help us to never take it for granted. I pray that you'd help us to never take for granted the lives of those around us. And that we'll always be grateful for what you give us. Thank you for all that you do for us in Jesus' name.